Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. We are almost in February. The year has been flying by. Um, and today we're going to set up everybody for Black History Month since Jazz and I have started the podcast We like to use February to honor those that have come before us in planning and a lot of different areas of life. So how are you doing, Jasmine? All is well. I cannot make any complaints. Um, Anything spicy going on? I've been watching How to Get Away with Murder on Netflix, and I am addicted. I'm on season three. I've only been watching for like six days. So there are... And it's actually causing me a little bit of anxiety because, you know, it's it's you can't watch that much murder and crime and so much. It's too many senses. So I'm definitely just a wee bit paranoid, but I'll be OK. I should stop watching. That's that's funny. I had started watching that, some, that show with somebody who's not in my life anymore. So whenever I see it come up on Netflix, I get a little triggered. So I've been watching Emily in Paris. No death, no killing. <laughs> Very peaceful. Um so to, as I mentioned, uh, the theme for Black History Month will be Black health and wellness. And so even though this episode will come out a little bit before February, we're just setting it up um, and kind of giving our listeners a background into why this topic is important um, in planning and then why also this topic matters to uh, Jasmine and I. And so today we will talk about health impact assessments or also known as HIAs. And so this is a tool that explores the, it's in, it's in the name, but we'll describe it a little bit more, the health impacts of a project, um, a policy, a plan. And specifically today, we're going to look at the Atlanta Beltline. And I'm sure if anyone has visited Atlanta recently, it's become a major tourist destination, um, but it is a public-private investment um, that, inter- that involved City of Atlanta, Fulton County, and other surrounding areas. Um, And so we're going to discuss what an HIA is, how you can use it or how you may see it in different contexts, and then specifically how it impacted Atlanta and the Beltline. And a lot of times in HIAs, it's looking at the health impacts, but from an equity standpoint. And so who is is it going to impact? Who is it going to impact for the better? Who may it impact for the worse? Um, specifically for communities that may have a history of being underrepresented or pushed out in the face of development. A health impact assessment um, is defined as a combination of procedures, methods, and tools by which a policy program or project may be judged as to its potential effects on the health of a population and the distribution of those effects within within the population. And so, as I just kind of described, um, it looks at, it's a tool, so it has a specific methodology that most HIAs follow consistently, but what they are assessing can change, whether that's a policy, a program, or a project. And we'll get into some examples a little bit later, but ideally it should happen early in the planning stages um, because you know the development team, the city, whoever's involved can really use the HIA as a way to mitigate, mitigate impacts 
rather than doing the assessment later on in the planning stage only to be like, well, we already planned this. We already are in design. Can't We don't really know what to tell you. Um, and another thing to note is that it's not required. So a lot of times there are regulations that require projects to have an environmental impact assessment that either um, federal agency like EPA or USDOT would oversee. Um, but HIAs are optional, but have become increasingly popular, I would say, over the last 15 years or so. Now that it's 2023, I'm like, what year is it anyway? Like, how many years have actually passed? And how was the 90s not like 10 years ago, but 30? Yeah, we old. We old for real. I do want to drill in on the distinction between HIA and uh, EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment, because the HIA was kind of born out of the, envir the, the Environmental Impact Assessment. And so there are certain projects that receive federal funding are required to do this environmental assessment. And there's a requirement and the results of that assessment can impact the project's design. And so there have been many transportation projects would come to mind for me, where they find this is going to impact, this is going to negatively impact just let's say a bird population, if they're going to do a bridge or something like that, and there's a endangered bird species, they might really have to reroute where this bridge is going to go to protect that bird species. And, but the personal impacts, the, the impacts of a project on health and on human health outcomes are often not considered in the environmental impact assessment. And so that's where planners and public health practitioners came together to say, okay, we need our own version of this tool, kind of modeling the environmental impact assessment that we can assess health. Um, the only difference is it's not mandated um, by any federal or state agency. It's an optional um, task that a lot of people have been taking on, but they have a different, it's, it's not a binding document that the results that come out of it uh, HIA, someone can pick up and someone can advocate for a change in a pro project's design, but it doesn't necessarily require those same changes. Yeah, I like how you mentioned the it is missing the human aspect of the impact of a project. Um, and that's, I feel like, ties into why we're talking about HIAs today and why specifically in this Black History Month theme of health and wellness, um, because the data shows that Black populations in the U.S. have a, an enormous amount of disparities when it comes to being able to utilize the spaces in which they live to be able to get physical activity, to be able to get to a grocery store, um, to be able to have different transportation methods that impact not just driving or being in a car, that also impacts your health. Um, and so it, this specific HIA discusses access and social equity, um, which is a common, a common section in HIAs. And the defining health um, in this HIA, they use the World, World Health Organization definition of a state of complete physical, social, and mental well-being, and not merely the absence of disease. And so that's how we're looking at it in this podcast, where, yes, you can have physical health, but we know that also connects to your mental and social well-being um, and that the design, if you're able to access things that positively impact your physical or mental or social well-being, are not by accident, but it's a history of policies, a history of design in space that impact that. And so we want to shed light on what happens when you don't have access to that and how that can increase chances for obesity, increase chances for heart disease and other mental or social 
or mother mental health um, disorders. Nemo mentioned that the HIA has a specific methodology. And so there's five steps to completing a health impact assessment. The first step is screening. So that involves first figuring out like what is the thing, the plan, the project, the policy, the program that you want to assess or you want to analyze the health impacts on. And then you want to scope out that project. You want to, okay, so they're about to build a bridge. What do we think are going to be the health outcomes that are going to be impacted by that, whether that's um, physical fitness or um, nutrition or whatever the 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 barrier the barrier is and then assessment so that's going through the process of figuring out okay this thing is going to add more physical activity or less physical activity to this particular neighborhood finally coming up with recommendations so now you've assessed this thing that's happening in your neighborhood and you figured out that it may have this type of positive or negative or neutral impact on an array of health outcomes then you want to um write that up in a report and present it to the decision makers and an important note about HI that we'll get into is that it doesn't have to be the entity that is paying for the project is often not the entity doing the health impact assessment different from an environmental impact assessment where it has to be that entity that is doing the work you want to report that out and make sure that you spread the word and kind of advocate and then the final step is monitoring and evaluation so we've seen okay here here's our recommendations we've presented them to our decision makers and now we need to track whether or not our perceived outcomes or our perceived recommendations are being implemented or if we're going to see worse or more positive outcomes as a result of this plan project policy or program so as Jasmine was saying, the um, the body or the um, stakeholders that are responsible for facilitating or executing the project don't have to be the ones that complete the HIA. Um, so it can be, for specifically in the Atlanta Beltline, um, it was not conducted by Beltline Incorporated, but Georgia Tech um, and the Center for Disease Control, CDC, which also happens to be based in Atlanta, um, led the HIA. But nonprofits, city planning departments, um, researchers can all, you know, choose to complete an HIA, um, and uh, there's a da- there's a database online led by Pew Charitable Trust um, where you can find HIAs from all over the U.S. Um, it won't, it may not have every HIA, um, but I find that it's a good tool for sorting um, HIAs by type and also when they came out. Um, there's a lot of filters you can include. Um, and then you can also sort by affected groups and like how they were affected. If it was like an environmental um, impact, if it was social, um, I think they also do by race um, and those sorts of things. So we just wanted to quickly highlight some examples of health impact assessments just to give you guys the, the broad range of the scope for which one of these can be conducted. And so the Oregon Public Health Institute and the Metropolitan Area Planning Council for the Oregon region conducted a health impact assessment on HUD, which is the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. They have a new housing rule. We won't get into what the ruling was, but this is an example of a health impact assessment that was conducted on a policy. And so the Oregon nonprofit organization and planning council said, okay, we think this housing rule is going to impact our population. And so we want to conduct a health impact assessment on this policy decision. 
And then in Connecticut, um, the Connecticut Association of Directors of Health and Southern Connecticut State University led an HIA on an express busway that would run between New Britain and Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and so that's a very specific project where people can see and point to where the impact would happen. It would be along the busway and surrounding neighborhoods. Um, and that's uh, that was, I think, my first example of an HIA in, uh, in the Seattle area um, with the link light rail. There's a lot of expansion, a lot of, well, this was years ago now. So at that point, they were in the planning stages of the expansion and now we're seeing it grow. Um, but there were a lot of HIAs and public meetings for that type of project. And then the last example that we have, um, Community Solutions, um, an, is a neighborhood nonprofit, and they led an HIA um, also in Connecticut um, for their revitalization and sustainability plan. And so, similar to the other examples, they can it can vary; it can be a very specific thing, or it can be a plan and analyzing what the plan is, whether that's you know ten or twenty years into the future, what the health impacts will be, with an emphasis on equity. So we're going to spend the bulk of the remaining of this episode talking about the Atlanta Beltline and the health impact assessment that was conducted on the Atlanta Beltline. The Beltline, for people who don't know, is a major infrastructure project currently partially completed and in the planning stages in some sections and under construction in other sections in Atlanta. And so... Ultimately, the Beltline is a trail network circling the city of Atlanta, and the trail network will also feature light rail stations and activation of community parks. And so the goal of the Atlanta Beltline is to provide improvements to over 700 acres of existing parks and then create an additional 1,300 acres of new parks and green spaces. The Beltline's overall vision includes 33 miles of multi-use trails, that meaning bicyclist and pedestrian-only trails, connecting um, 42 parks and then an additional 22-mile loop of transit service. And it, it has an anticipated ridership of over 73,000 people. The Atlanta Beltline is the brainchild of a Georgia Tech graduate student um, from Atlanta. And he had this idea because the city of Atlanta, the history of Atlanta is that it was a rail hub for the South being further from Savannah than the ports system. It was a major network to connect the ports of Savannah in South Carolina to the rest of the South, Alabama, Mississippi, and parts of Texas. And so Atlanta has these existing little rail lines kind of in a circle of the city and he saw these on a map while he was doing just urban planning research and came up with this idea how cool it would be to connect all of these and to connect the neighborhoods and so part of the belt line has been completed the east side trail and the west side trail are completed and then there's other sections of it that are under completion so if you can visualize with me the city of Atlanta is in the center and um, just like a quadrant, it has a northeast section, a northwest section, a southeast section, a southwest section, and a circle connecting all of those pieces with downtown Atlanta kind of right in the middle. And so the Beltline and surrounding areas will be about 6,400 square feet of land area. And um, the Beltline, through its 
policy making created this special um, planning and zoning district. So Nima, do you want to talk a little bit about the policy that created the Beltline? Yeah, and I was just going to add, I, I love that it was created by a grad student. I just like that's really motivation to like, don't let nobody sleep on your ideas. You can do whatever you want to do um, and make it happen. And in reading the HIA, I think it was mentioned a few times how the a lot of the neighborhoods that fall within the Beltline have a history of segregation. Um, and so, you know, as we go through some of the outcomes since the first few sections of the Beltline have been completed, I think it'll be interesting to see how it either is working for or against that. And I would love to interview the guy who came up with the idea and see if it's like, you know, are they following what he was hoping to do with by connecting those parts of the city? So I'll just add that it is not um, living <laughs> up to its vision. So just disclosure, um, I lived in Atlanta for about two years and the Beltline was actually one of the major reasons why I wanted to move there um, and, and study urban planning in that area. And so he actually used to sit on the board of Beltline Incorporated, which is the quasi-private entity that kind of oversees the Beltline's construction and development is a public-private partnership. So they have funding from city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia, but then also philanthropic donations and then they raise money independently. And he actually left the board of Beltline Incorporated because it wasn't living up to his vision for both the housing affordability issues and the transit issues. So none of the transit element of the Beltline has currently been realized. It's just on people from Atlanta who don't like the Beltline because of the things we're going to talk about, the the changing in home values and gentrification, just call it a, a big sidewalk. They're like, all it is, is just a loop sidewalk around the city. I don't understand it. Um, but it has spurred so much economic development, all these different parts of the city. And yeah, so to get to Nemo's question, he's not very happy with the current outline, <laughs> and the that's current the outcome. <laughs> And he left, he packed up his things. Oh, wow. That, yeah, that's good to know. Thank you for that. Um, so speaking of that, looking at how the Beltline was funded and approved. Um, so the strategy falls under a tax allocation district, and that required approval from the city council, the school board, and the Atlanta mayor's office. And basically what it does is that it says that, okay, this Beltline is going to increase property values and therefore increase taxes. And that's what they'll use to repay the bonds that were used to fund the capital improvements to actually construct the Beltline. Um, and so it's expected to raise 1.7 billion over a 25 year period. Um, and then um, a lot of the publicly funded improvements like parks and new infrastructure and cleanup um, that will also take place over that time. It's truly a partnership between multiple different partners in Atlanta, whether that's MARTA, which is their transit provider, Atlanta Housing Authority, Invest Atlanta, which is their economic development engine, the city, the counties, individual neighborhoods, the school board, all these different people came together and major institutions, Georgia Tech. And so the plan for the Beltline was introduced by this former graduate student. He presented it to the mayor. She loved it. City council loved it. They decided, okay, we're going to try to push this forward, seeing as an opportunity for economic development. So Georgia Tech wanted to kind of get ahead of the, the curve and say, okay, wait, we're talking about nearly 7,000 square feet of land area. We're talking about an additional 
all these additional acres of parks and trails and transit, this is going to have a major impact on people. And so we want to assess the health impacts of the Beltline. And so Georgia Tech, along with the CDC, came up with this kind of model or framework that I think truly is one of the best ways to describe how the built environment has impacts on health and health outcomes. And so Nemo and I are going to run through about five or so of the outcomes of the Beltline and then do our best to connect them to specific health conditions. And so, of course, in the show notes, we will have all of our research. We'll have the HIA link there and other documents as well. And so I'll just start with one of the first sections. So the Beltline is a park trail and transit redevelopment project that has implications on environment, safety, social capital, physical activity, and access. And so starting with access, the health impact assessment for the Beltline measured access before and after the Beltline's development for current and future populations, um, bringing trails, parks, transit, and grocery stores. And so that had implications for obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and mental health. And so getting into the physical activity impact, um, as we've been talking about throughout this episode and um, our theme for Black History Month is that connection between physical activity um, and chronic disease. And so because a lot of the things that are being added to added to the area with the Beltline, um, being trails and parks, the um, goal is that it would you know positively impact those health outcomes um, and see a, de a decline in some of those illnesses. And then, of course, it impacts the environment. And so in Atlanta, air quality is not the best, similar to cities like Los Angeles and Houston, where driving is the primary mode of transportation. There's a lot of particulate matter and other pollutants that come from cars. And so there's this hope that people will ride the train around the Beltline or they will walk to their destination because they can access a nice trail. And so with that, there was the hope that respiratory illnesses and cancers would have a decreased um, prevalence in Atlanta and Atlanta communities. The HIA also looks at safety um, and the, the safety is looking at two aspects. So safety, how you think about it in terms of crime. Um, so being outside in public space and the possibility of crime. Um, but then also injury, whether you're in motion, um, walking, running on the trail, or riding a bike, um, or if you have a physical disability, that also may impact how you interact with the trail and that, how that could lead to any sort of um, accidental injury or um, harm. And then finally, social capital, which is something we talk a lot about on this podcast, but being outdoors and being physically active enables you to meet others. And it's literally Nemo talked about the segregation of the city of Atlanta. So the goal of the Beltline or one of the premises of it is like it's literally a connection. It's looping together all of these different neighborhoods. And so kind of the perception was, okay, it should have a reduction in mental health and isolation and maybe hate crimes because it's hope it's a physical piece that's bringing the community together. So I always forget, and Jasmine, you may know, um, when did the belt, when was the first section of the Beltline completed? 
I don't know exactly what year the first section was completed, but I would probably say around 2010. It was kind of right after the financial crisis. Okay. And that first um, section, if people have visited Atlanta, is Pont City Market area um, and the East Side Trail. Did Pont City, because that's like the only part of the Beltline that I've, um, I went down quite a ways um, by a scooter, but that's the one, the part that I have in my mind when I think about the Beltline and Pont City Market. Um, did Pont City Market come after or did it after the Beltline? Yeah, so the, the trail um, was paved and then a series of redevelopment efforts happened around it. And Pont City Market used to be the, I want to say it was the Sears and Roebuck building. And so it already had an existing trail line. So if you go to that east side trail, you will actually see like rail lines there. But I think it was a collaborative effort, realizing like we need to bring economic development along this trail. Pont City Market and the Beltline developed together in a way. Okay. I'm glad I have Jasmine here as our ATL <laughs> expert. Um, but those were things, you know, as a as a tourist, as someone visiting that I enjoyed um, in Atlanta. But we say all that to say from, it's been about, I guess, 13 um, years since, um, since the first section was completed. And as of August, 2021, um, so over a year ago is when some of the latest updates were published um, publicly on the Beltline. Um, the trail is about uh, it's about 50% complete. Um, and a lot of those other sections are um, still in design. Um, more sections are in design than under construction. So I'll leave, just set that there and leave it. Um, but uh, about 50%, and it's not a 50% consecutive completion, um, but 50% uh, of different parts of the trail that are completed. And part of that reason, if you will have, like we said the show notes, but like we talked about the different quadrants on the completion side, the Pont City Market side of the trail that most people are familiar with is the east side um, of Atlanta. And that specific portion of Atlanta is traditionally or historically like a middle class area. So, and it has also though been the place of a lot of economic development. So mm, President Carter, is the president who's from Georgia, his presidential center is like in this immediate area. And so the idea of why they completed one section in, in the east side and then jumped all the way to the southwestern side is because the impact of the Beltline was so immediate. Um, soon as the trail went up and Pot City Market was there, housing prices shot up immediately. And so they didn't want to have like a disproportionate impact on neighborhoods so they moved to the southwest side which has traditionally been significantly lower income the lowest income areas of the city this is the area where uh, Clark Atlanta Spelman and Morehouse are located this is the traditionally black Martin Luther King Drive is over here it's on the opposite side of downtown um, and so they worked on two, those two different sections so the Beltline is complete in all these various sections, but just because the Beltline is not 100% completed doesn't mean that it hasn't had an impact on the city of Atlanta. And so for this episode, we are going to focus on the impact of the Beltline on housing in the city of Atlanta. And so part of the visioning for the Beltline that included the 33 miles of 
trails and the 22 miles of um, transit service, they also had a vision for new housing units. And their vision included that 20% of new housing units built in that tax allocation district, the special zoning area for the Beltline had to be affordable. And so that resulted in about 5,600 units was the goal. That was their target for affordable units. And so Atlanta Beltline Incorporated, which is the entity, like we talked about, that is handling the public-private partnership and the management of the project, has an online tool titled the Atlanta Beltline Investment Data Explorer, which allows users to see a map of the progress of the Beltline, as well as development efforts and focus areas. And so according to this tool, the Beltline is about 50% complete in re meet meeting their affordable housing goals, which would mean they have around 34 or 3,500 units of affordable housing um, already completed. Now, the accuracy of that percentage at 56% has come into question through the research that Nemo and I did online because there are different entities that being the Housing Authority of Atlanta and Invest Atlanta and then some units have been rehabbed that puts into question whether or not the Beltline has actually reached that 50% um, goal. And so the tool does note four different real estate developments near the Bell Line, two on the East Side Trail and two on the West Side Trail. The City of Atlanta City Council has a kind of Belt Line tracker as well that when updated in 2017 said that they had about 335 units of housing that was affordable, planned, under construction, or completed um, within the City of Atlanta near the Belt Line. And so whether they're at that 50% mark or they're hovering down around 300%, that was the goal. The, the goal or the objective of the Beltline was to bring 5,600 units of affordable housing to the area. When I hear that 15%, I think, and I guess as some people have questioned how much they've actually developed um, to say that they're halfway done with the goal. I wonder if there should have been something um, in the plan for the Beltline that would make affordable housing, the affordable housing goals more aggressive over time as the population of Atlanta continued to grow. Um, because I guess 5,600 units may have been sizable um, at the time of the population at that, you know, 10, over 10 years ago when the Beltline was being planned. But I wonder how that looks now. And I know some cities do their affordable housing trust fund a little bit differently but there's i from what i'm thinking there's usually a way where either the mayor or the council can continuously add to that fund even outside of whatever percentage it's like a minimum it should be thought of as a minimum so i wonder what else atlanta has done for that for the beltline affordable housing trust fund outside of the required amount yeah, so there's two elements here at work. They have the trust fund, which says that 15% of the bond proceeds have to be allocated to the trust fund, the affordable housing trust fund. And then another kind of requirement or goal that 20% of new housing units in that area should be affordable. And so if they're 15%, if they're saying that they're 56% of the way there, it's a combination of those um, 
two kind of objectives. So we're going to assess in this episode the impact of the Beltline on housing and affordable housing, looking at um, one main research report that was completed by Dan Immergluck, who was a professor at Georgia State University. He used to be a professor at Georgia Tech. And so his report, his research paper published in the Urban Studies Institute um, publication is Sustainable for Whom? Green Urban Development, Environmental Gentrification, and the Atlanta Beltline. And in this research, he analyzes the change in home value um, for properties within one half mile of the Beltline and outside of one half mile of the Beltline to understand the impact of the project on home values in the city of Atlanta. And just like we talked about the four different quadrants of the Beltline, the Northwest, the Northeast, the Southeast, and the Southwest areas, with each having different populations, the report also breaks down the difference and the change in home values across that population, across those different um, sectors. And so he has this regression model is very complicated and sophisticated and the results of the report and the report itself are going to be in our show notes, but I'll just summarize and read a section of the report that I feel kind of summarizes the report very well. It says, the increase in median sales price was the highest near the Southwest segment with a cumulative increase over the four years of 68%, the four years being 2011 to 2015. The other three segments saw median prices rise by 40 to 51%. Meanwhile, the median sales price of homes more than a half mile from the belt line increased at a substantially lower rate, just 17% over the four-year period. And so there's two things at play. He's comparing on one hand, the impact of the Beltline for properties within a half mile and the impact of the Beltline for properties outside of a half mile and then comparing the changes amongst individual neighborhoods. One thing I thought uh, stood out to me when reading the HIM, we talked a little bit about like the segregation um, in the city and within the Beltline study area Um was how the Southwest Quadrant was identified as vulnerable. Um, and so some of the data points in the HIA showed that the Southwest um, portion of the Beltline planning area had the highest percent of non-white population. So 96% of those living in that um, in the Southwest planning area identify as a person of color. Um, and about 30% were below the poverty level. Um, and the per capita income at the time when the HIA was written in 2012, um, but using tw uh, 2000 census data was about $12,000 as a per capita in income. Um, and um, so when we think about the home values increasing so rapidly, um, happening fast, and then the amount in which it increased for that specific population um, is really telling. And of course, in the southwest area, you would expect to see um, a larger change in the sales price because the homes were probably valued at much lower. And so they had a lower starting point and then they jumped. And so what I thought was interesting in the report is he didn't provide the actual dollar values to say, OK, in 2011, a house within a half mile of the Beltline averaged X amount. 
and by 2015 and average this amount just to show you where each neighborhood was starting. But home disparity and income disparity in Atlanta across, so Atlanta, for people who don't know, has uh, Interstate 85 going down the middle and Interstate 20 going across the east and west and so it creates like a perfect quadrant of the different neighborhoods and southwest atlanta is one of the more vulnerable populations whereas the northwest and northeast segments are more of the affluent populations that change though in value really shows you how much this trail and this development effort can sway people's perceptions. So you're saying that just by this trail coming to this Southwest neighborhood, which already exists with um, these neighborhood characteristics of low income, um, maybe there's crime challenges, maybe there's school quality challenges, but just the introduction of this infrastructure project drastically improves home value to me that was very fascinating because it's telling you something and then in the northwest segment the belt line hadn't even been developed it's still under construction when you look at the map that we talked about earlier um that's on the belt lines website the northeast and northwest segments of the trail are either in study or in design and so that means that in 2015 just the idea that the belt line was going to be in this neighborhood increased home values between 40 and 51% if you were within uh, walking distance of this imaginary thing that we're not even sure is going to happen yet. Yeah, I think there was a data point about um, that in that Southwest quadrant, it's mostly renters. Um, and so when the um, sale price and the home value and the property taxes increase, that makes renters vulnerable as well. Um, because landlords will be able to raise the rent um, and there's no rent control in Georgia. Um, and so, um, you know, just to make to paint that landscape of what what will actually happen, what is happening um, as the Beltline impacts the cost of uh, how much it costs to keep a roof over your head. So that story of the impact of home value. So you may be thinking, OK, well, my home is more valuable. And so there's ways that homeowners or landlords can do things themselves to in influence their value of their home. They can improve a bathroom. They can remodel the kitchen. They can do an addition. They can go up another story if it's a ranch style home, and that will improve the value or the future sales price of that property. But there are other things that happen in the built environment that individual homeowners don't have control over that may positively or negatively influence their home value. Uh, a school could close that would negatively improve your home value. There could be a series of vicious crimes in the area that could reduce the home values. Or you could live within a half mile of this major infrastructure project that's supposed to bring X number of new residents to the area and that can drastically shoot up your value. And so from a renter's perspective, when it's an external factor or whether it's an, um, an internal factor, meaning the landlord has made that change, they're at risk of their rent increasing or the building being sold. And now the new landlord wants to convert it to a condo or wants to do all these other things to change the demographic of the person living in the, the home. And so 
the displacement is kind of the story that comes out to me from this article because if your home if you're renting and the your landlord knows that now he can sell his house for 68% more than what it was worth. That means you have to go. Like, I'm going to sell this. I'm going to increase my value. Either you pay twice as much or you leave. And so where are the residents moving? They're not moving to Northwest Atlanta or Northeast Atlanta. They're moving further South and further Southwest into this more suburban areas of the city. And so when Nemo talks about those populations being vulnerable, they're vulnerable to the least number of days being physically active, the highest exposure to air pollutants, um, the greatest number or the greatest likelihood of being obese. And so this wonderful trail and infrastructure investment is coming to their neighborhood and it may give them the opportunity to combat some of those negative health outcomes that they were experiencing as a result of their built environment but due to the commodification of the trail it has now become something that you can use to improve the value of your land and now they're not even going to get a chance to benefit from it. They're going to move further away from it and lose any of the benefit that they could have received. Yeah, especially those quali the quality of life benefits that I'm sure the original, when the original idea came to be all those years ago, um, was going to have an impact on. Um, but like you said, they're, they're at risk um, and vulnerable to the displacement. Um, and one of the things that the nonprofit arm of the Belt, Beltline Incorporated, um, uh, that nonprofit arm is called the Beltline Partnership. Um, in uh, 2020, they created a, a re legacy resident retention program. So if you lived along the Beltline for over five years, um, specifically the west side and the southwest side, um, portions, um, then you could qualify for a grant to help with the fast rising property taxes. Um, and that program is expected to last until 2030. Um, but that's also when the Beltline is expected to be completed. So for the portions that are not completed, like we've been discussing, the property taxes and property values have already been rising. But this program is expected to end at that point. And so I'm just curious what will be done to address, to actually keep the legacy alive and keep the, people, the residents who have been living there for a long time in place um, and that it took till 2020, the Beltline had already been in existence for 10 years um, to have this sort of program. And the tax element of this is a really interesting one because appraisals come around, the appraiser for the city of Atlanta will come around and say, oh, well, your home is assessed at $100,000. And so that means you have to pay six grand a year in property taxes well if your home value doubles to two hundred thousand you might have to pay twelve or fifteen thousand in property taxes a year and if you are a homeowner in the southwest segment of atlanta you're likely older you're likely on a fixed income and so you can't easily absorb that and so it's even worse than renters because now someone who had been owning their home for x number of years has to sell their home not because they want to but because they can no longer afford the property taxes on their home and so the wealth and while they might get to benefit from an improved value of their home and move somewhere else 
people are attached to their neighborhood and they're attached to place. And so they're losing that attachment in seek of a cheaper place to live with lower property taxes. I just feel like it's a very vicious cycle, whether you're on the homeowner side or the renter side. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about it as much in this episode, but that does come up in the HIA about the social capital and those connections that come from living in the same place for an extended period of time and that impact that it has on your mental health and your social well-being, knowing that when you go up around your neighborhood, you're going to see people that you know, you're going to see people that you're familiar with and people that you trust versus to having to start over um, all over again, and especially when you maybe at a later point in life where it is harder to make those connections and it's just not the same. And so that feeling of safety and trust in your neighborhood where you spend the most time um, just isn't there. I will note that the health impact assessment was completed in 2005, I believe, was pretty early in the 2000s. And one of their recommendations um, was to establish policies and programs to prevent displacement in surrounding in areas surrounding the Beltline Tax Allocation District. They suggested property tax freezes, assistance to make housing improvements, and other um displacement programs to protect residents from property values that are rapidly increasing. And what I love about the health impact assessment tool is that it really is a very linear way to say this thing is happening and it's going to have this effect on this population and then that's going to have this effect on their health outcomes. And so they have a chart towards the bottom of the health impact assessment that you'll see in our show notes that shows you the key findings, the affected populations, the recommendations, and then the relationship that it's going to impact. And so they write, many census block groups in the west side, southwest, and southeast planning areas have a median household income that is 30 to 60% of the area median income for the city of Atlanta. Therefore, qualify for housing assistance. And they say this is going to impact residents' access to the Beltline, it's going to impact their social capital, and it's going to impact their environment. And then they make those recommendations to prevent these things from happening because they note that this fact that these populations are so vulnerable and the Beltline is going to have a positive impact on property values, the literal tax allocation district was designed to suck up some of that increase they're saying we're going to pay back our bonds because we're going to be able to assess properties higher and we're going to get our money back that was all built into the process and so this is going to have negative health impacts on these vulnerable low-income populations yeah and as we wrap up this episode in the beginning we wanted to describe how this connects to our goal for black history month and how a lack of access impacts your physical, mental, um, and overall well-being. Um, and so through taking you all on this HIA journey, specifically in the Atlanta Belt line, um, we're showing how years and decades of planning and policies, or lack thereof, can be the very thing that continues to perpetuate health disparities. Um, and so an HIA is one of the tools where that can be examined. Um, but even for projects and plans and policies that do not have an HIA, um, I think those involved from <clears throat> those involved from a policy standpoint um, or a planning standpoint do have a responsibility to address address these health disparities as early as possible. My biggest takeaway from 
studying this HIA conducted in Atlanta and in the Beltline is that getting this project done and getting it to come into fruition was not an easy task. Like we mentioned, it was the brainchild of a graduate student. How many graduate students have ideas for their city that they study in? Tons of us, Nemo and I both went to grad school. We had ideas. We wanted our, our college town to look like. And we might have presented them to, to leaders in, in different forms. So it took a lot of effort for the city of Atlanta to listen to this young man to take his idea to city council, to put money behind it and put policy behind it and set up a whole special tax allocation district behind it, all under this wonderful vision of 33 miles of trails and 22 miles of um, transit and new park spaces and new green spaces. It's unfortunate, though, that they didn't have the same tenacity or the same um, visioning for affordable housing. Housing affordability was an issue in Atlanta before the Beltline, and it will be an issue for the for the city of Atlanta after the Beltline, especially with the influx of residents from other northern and western cities that are having higher incomes and coming to the city and maybe working remotely. And so my biggest takeaway is I wish that they would have had the same foresight and same grand visioning that they said, okay, we're going to champion this green infrastructure project in the South nonetheless, but we're not going to make a consideration, a bigger stance on affordable housing. We're just going to take the bare minimum 20% and be done with it. And I think that was a really big missed opportunity of the visioning of the Beltline. And now we're seeing the consequences of it take place in the city. Mic drop. Um, that I'm glad we're leaving it there because we have a, a few more episodes for Black History Month where we're going to be digging into this topic that Jasmine and I care a lot about. You'll definitely hear this theme in a lot of our past episodes too. One of our first episodes was on mental health and the built environment. Um, so we're constantly exploring that connection between place and people. Um, and um, we have our next episode. We have a special guest to talk about how they make both physical fitness and place, um, how they make it come alive um, where they live. And so um, we're excited for that conversation, but thank you for joining us today. Um, we drop episodes every other Tuesday and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod. Um, please let us know what you think of this episode, what you want to hear more of, um, what you're, how you're feeling this Black History Month. Um, and we look forward to connecting with you. Peace out, y'all.